hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Let's get real, let's get loud. On America on Loud Talk Radio, this is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. We have a terrific show for you uh, today, and uh, I want to actually start, as I did, I think, in the last few programs, with the music segment. This comes all the way from New Zealand, wonderful Allie Cook and Little White Crosses. Oh, 
Wow, that was powerful. That was Ellie Cook, Little White Crosses from New Zealand. Listen to those lyrics. Those who took the trusted medicine and died, they had little white crosses. Those who took the medicines, or in this case, the injections, and who survived, they turned their backs and had no empathy for those who died. Doesn't that really make the case of what's going on today? And what she says in the lyrics of the song is that the truth will come out. And there's no doubt about it. I've said in big national programs, uh, St. Augustine had it right. The truth is like a lion. Let the truth out. The truth can defend itself. Boy, the news cycle is unbelievably busy right now. In the last uh, several days, I have been on a whirlwind tour. I was in the state state house capitol building in Columbus, Ohio, with Robert F. Kennedy, uh, Nadira Garrity, who led uh, the patient session the following day. Uh, and we heard from vaccine injury victims all over the country tell their story, neurologic syndromes, uh, uh, a wonderful man from Texas, Ernesto, who's lost his son after uh, COVID-19 vaccine-induced myocarditis. And what a wake-up call this is for America as they're in the rest of the world, as they're being presented with a proposition of uh, potentially lose your life or keep your job for another six months. And we now have reports uh, that the consequences of doing this are extraordinary. It's up on my Twitter feed, P underscore McCullough MD. Many of you follow me on Twitter. I'm able to review the uh, information there. And I uh, just uh, uh, posted a tweet uh, earlier uh, today. So it'll be this week for the report. And uh, in there, I highlight the SOA Research Institute title of the report, Group Life uh, COVID-19 mortality survey report. These are group life insurance bands and they're, uh, they're insurance companies. They're looking at age mortality by age band, ages zero to 44. And this is actual to expected rates. So this is through uh, second quarter of 2020, 124% means 24% excess, then 34% excess, 23% excess. Moving into 2021, first quarter, 21% excess. Uh, second quarter, we start to see the vaccine effect, 130% excess. Now in quarter number three of 2021, we have a situation where we have 189% uh, actual to observe mortality, so an 89% excess. Now for the year, the excess is 137%, and of that uh, 14% is thought to be COVID and 23% and non-COVID. So uh, the, the question there is, what is that 23% excess of mortality? Is that, uh, is, is that myocardial infarction? Is it cancer? Is it uh, other health conditions, suicide, uh, or is indeed is a COVID-19 vaccine? Remember, this is ages 0 to 44 in the United States. Very few people die in that age group, far less than 200,000 a year. So to have this big increase. Now the next age group, age 45 to 64, if we uh, go all the way over to quarter number three in 2021, 183% excess. There, uh, the estimates are 21.9% due to COVID and 12.2% non-COVID. Interestingly, those uh, 65 uh, and over, 
you know, fewer have life insurance because they're now no longer employed. Uh, but there, the overall excess was only a 13% uh, excess in quarter number three. And uh, in fact, it was all attributed to COVID and not the vaccine. So more to come on that. I think it's a mixed report. I don't think it's definitive uh, in any way, but we'll take a, a look at that. The other interesting thing is that uh, Jeff Jackson recently has uh, reviewed the um, the uh, Walgreens vaccine data information, and uh, that is very, very interesting uh, because Walgreens is, uh, along with CVS, are one of the biggest administrators of the vaccine program, and it turns out they are actually keeping track of test positivity. Many have to go there for tests uh, for work or or they're very, certainly very convenient if, if uh, indeed people get sick with uh, COVID-19, they're able to go into Walgreens and get a convenient test. But the, the report on Walgreens and the vaccination program is not uh, very favorable to Walgreens. And um, I do have that on my, my Twitter feed. Let me see if I can bring it up. Here it is. So we'll listen just briefly to Jeff Jackson of case rates by vaccination status. Yeah. And we have 8.6% not vaccinated. So this is all the positivity rate of the people that were tested. So 8.6% of people not vaccinated that came in to get tested, tested positive. But what's interesting here is if you go across, you're seeing the one dose, 13.0% tested positive. And then two dose greater than five months ago, 15.8% and so on and so forth. And then even at three doses uh, greater than five months ago, you have 19.9%. So we're seeing the booster shot is actually the highest positivity rate, COVID positivity rate of everybody in this in this Walgreens accounting for, for that people that have come in for these tests. But again, third doses, we're seeing 18.1%. So we're seeing a, a really high positivity rate in these booster shots in the 65 and older. What we are clearly seeing here is that this statement that it's uh, at all a pandemic of the unvaccinated is clearly not true. It's the lowest percentage even amongst themselves, 8.6%, the lowest number in, in all of those that were coming in. This is Walgreens. So that was Dell Bigtree giving commentary. Uh, it's clear that the unvaccinated have the lowest rate of Walgreens positivity and the triple vaccinated have the highest rate of positivity. So it couldn't be uh, more of a testimony to how the system is backfiring. And, and the narrative that comes out still in support of the vaccine is stunning. Uh, vaccine uh, proponent, uh, Dr. Peter Hotez at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, who's developed his own vaccine, uh, has been a triple or more vaccinated, has come down with COVID, and he's taking Paxlovid, uh, as like so many people in the media uh, who are uh, multiply vaccinated coming down with COVID-19. And then his commentary is not about the failure of the vaccines, but in fact that he's grateful and he's attributing a mild case to having received the vaccine. Well, the data suggests with Omicron that we're down to uh, very few hospitalizations and deaths, no matter vaccinated or unvaccinated. It's just a very mild illness to begin with. And so uh, wrongly ascribing the severity of the illness to the vaccine is just another way, I think, of still falsely promoting uh, the mass vaccination program. Uh, I was on the media 
uh, earlier uh, in the last few days, and I learned in the state of Louisiana within the last week, 4.7 million inhabitants, there were only 60, 60 individuals in the hospital with COVID-19 for the entire state. I think a stunning uh, testimony to how early treatment has worked and also how the vaccines have uh, very much um, uh, uh, played into uh, not only the frequency of Omicron, uh, but the fact that uh, Omicron itself is a mild illness. If the vaccines are making it milder for those who've taken them, I won't take anything away from that if that's true, but there are no sources of randomized data uh, to support that type of feeling. You can tell it's almost uh, like a feeling of emotion. Uh, otherwise, news in the uh, published literature, New England Journal of Medicine, DAI and colleagues, D-A-I and colleagues, uh, present a new vaccine. And that's the efficacy and safety of the receptor binding domain dimer-based COVID-19 vaccine ZF2001 in adults. This is the Chinese antigen-based vaccine. It's a 25 microgram dose of the spike protein given at three doses. So at time zero, 30 days uh, and 60 days. So it takes about a 90 days total series. And over that initial 90 days, while people were getting inoculated, uh, unfortunately, 204 in those who got ZF001 and 209 in placebo actually got COVID. So that took a lot of starch out of the vaccine. They had excluded prior COVID, those with uh, antibodies, hypertension, pregnant women, breastfeeding women, cancer patients, uh, immune deficient, and, other, and those who had received a COVID-19 vaccine. So once we start the clock at 90 days, now the vaccine efficacy uh, reported in and this is a contrived way of reporting in vaccine efficacy, but the numbers were for uh, ZF002001, vaccine efficacy came in at 75.7% for the primary endpoint. So not bad for the Chinese antigen-based vaccine, but since in the United States, 80% of Americans have taken a vaccine, in some countries like Canada, it's probably upwards to 90%. Uh, and the fact that they excluded COVID recovered, pregnancy, hypertension, what have you. There'd be very few people even eligible to take this vaccine. Uh, and we know that if we actually count what's called intention to treat, that is through that first 90-day period where people are getting vaccinated, then there would be no uh, benefit to the vaccine whatsoever. The other vaccine that came in, and I'm told this may uh, come out in Canada, uh, in this paper by Hager and colleagues, again, New England Journal of Medicine, Efficacy and safety of a recombinant plant-based uh, adjuvanted COVID-19 vaccine. So this is a vaccine derived uh, from plants. It's an antigen-based vaccine, two doses of 3.75 micrograms of a plant-derived co-VLP particles. So this gets away from administering the spike protein. 21 days apart, uh, 24,141 individuals. Mean age was 29. The question is what 29-year-old really wants to take a vaccine, but that's the study population. Now, the overall vaccine efficacy was calculated at 69.5% in the attention to treat population, which is the correct population. However, they measured viral load in the nose uh, across um, multiple time points in those with mild to moderate, mild to moderate severe disease. And there was no difference. You can see these plots visually on there. So unfortunately, this, like all the other vaccines, is it not going to impair spread of the virus, nor is it going to make uh, an impact, if you will, on uh, on containing the, the pandemic. Uh, the next paper that came up, and this is by Margaret Lind, 
The title of the paper is Effectiveness of a Primary and Booster COVID-19 Messenger RNA Vaccination Against Omicron uh, Variant uh, of the Infection in People with Prior SARS-CoV-2. And the point is, in those without prior infection, uh, the vaccine efficacy of a booster 14 days after the third dose calculated in at 56.9%, so that's barely in the acceptable range. But if someone had a prior infection, there were uh, a a few cases to report on, but I can tell you in 14 days uh, after the booster, they did have 37 uh, purported cases. The vaccine efficacy was only 45.8%, so effectively useless for individuals who had already recovered from COVID-19. Those are the people we hadn't really advised receiving the vaccine at all. And then finally, one outcomes paper. This was up on my Twitter feed, just posted a few days ago. And it's data from the Ontario COVID-19 vaccination uh, data. And here they are reporting in Ontario. This is as of May 4th, 2022. You can find it on their website. Hospitalizations by vaccination status. Fully vaccinated, 81 cases. Partially vaccinated, five cases, and unvaccinated, 30 cases. That's in the ICU. In the hospital, but not the ICU, across all of Ontario, fully vaccinated, 1,050 cases, partially vaccinated, 66 cases, unvaccinated, 239 cases. So A, that's not a big caseload for the entire province of Ontario, and B, that's a terrible report for the vaccinated who are getting COVID and some of the seniors and high-risk people, when they get it, they end up in the hospital. So we couldn't have had a worse report across the board for uh, vaccine clinical effectiveness. That's different than efficacy, by the way. Clinical effectiveness uh, basically is doesn't really work in a population or a clinical group. Uh, clinical efficacy is actually doesn't work in a randomized trial when we apply it to one individual. So that's my summary uh, for this week. I just have a few comments and want to direct you to other places on the platform. Please uh, listen every day at 5 p.m. for Pulse. And Pulse is having a big, big emphasis on the World Health Organization proposed global health treaty for pandemic response. And what the World Health Organization has proposed, and the Biden administration has had this for several months, is an all-encompassing legally binding treaty, which would fund the WHO, uh, again, with uh, legal consequences uh, uh, by international courts, if not complied, and then also broad authority uh, to declare emergencies, to declare pandemic response measures, uh, declare mass vaccination, lockdowns, masking. Uh, You can imagine uh, the global authority of doing this and, uh, and, and very, very worrisome. They want to have control of the flow of information regarding a pandemic worldwide. What's in it for the recipients? Uh, it's unclear. In the United States, I don't think there's anything in it for it. It potentially could help underdeveloped countries that have little or no public health infrastructure, but it wouldn't help the United States. And there's great concern here that uh, there would be no checks on conflict of interest. Some bigger countries could have a much bigger impact. Gates Foundation, other stakeholders, no checks on conflict of interest there. And then the replies uh, to amendments of this by the Biden administration are also worrisome, uh, taking it from uh, a not a treaty status, which would require ratification in the Senate or 
or the House of Representatives or both, but in fact actually by certification or approval uh, through the executive branch only. I think that's extremely worrisome. Uh, this is something we American people would want to weigh in on. So in a sense, it's signing up America to be part of a global response. Now, people have asked me, is it all bad? I said, well, you know, it sounds very bad. All healthcare is local. Everyone wants their local control over this. People want to uh, trust their doctors. The doctors want to be able to use their full powers and authorities to take care of patients. Uh, we would not want any type of global oversight or direction from the WHO. WHO simply can analyze data and provide advice and guidelines, but no more than that. Uh, having said that, people have asked me, is the WHO all bad? And I've said no for the following reasons. You know, in COVID-19, the WHO in 2020 carefully reviewed remdesivir. They reviewed it. They did the largest clinical trial of remdesivir in the hospital. They reviewed all the data. They convened meetings. They had panels of experts. They had ethicists weigh in. And the WHO put out a recommendation not to use remdesivir in the hospital because more patients were dying and patients were developing kidney failure and liver injury. And the European Society of Critical Care supported the WHO in that decision. So if American hospitals and the National Institutes of Health and CDC and FDA actually follow the World Health Organizations, we wouldn't be using remdesivir in U.S. hospitals, and we probably would have not lost so many lives with that product. Remdesivir is a toxic polymerase inhibitor now used late in illness, uh, results in higher mortality in those who've received it. Remdesivir does have some positive data in a randomized trial of outpatients by Gottlieb and colleagues, given very early about a three-day course in an infusion clinic as an outpatient, it does result in a positive effect. I don't know any centers that have really operationalized that, but I'm not completely against remdesivir. It's given early. And now recently, remdesivir was given a emergency use authorization on a very small study, not even a randomized trial, just giving it to children in the hospital, some on the mechanical ventilator, some on ECMO or extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. These are advanced life support. And they simply showed they, give the, they gave the children remdesivir. It didn't demonstrate efficacy whatsoever, but I think it offers a desperate population some type of def, desperate measure that could be undertaken to uh, potentially treat COVID-19 in the hospital. But if we would have followed the World Health Organization recommendations, we would not be using a remdesivir as it's customarily used in U.S. hospitals and adults. Roughly 25% of adults receive remdesivir. They have no opportunity for benefit. And uh, there is very strong evidence it's contributed to mortality in the hospital. Uh, patients have learned over time to actually tell doctors and have it in their in their wishes not to receive remdesivir to have the best chances at survival. But you'd think at this point in time, American doctors would, would see the data as they are and simply not choose to administer it. The other thing they meant, the World Health Organization, in my view, is, uh, as did right, was recommendations on testing. They recommended the PCR test in June of 2021 not be used for asymptomatic testing. Well, we have a great show for you uh, uh, today. On the back side, I spend a dedicated period of time on integrative medicine, and I bring to the microphone the first time Dr. Weston Wiggy. Saunders, and I can tell you he is terrific. He's married to uh, a leader in the North Carolina Physicians for Freedom group, Miss Emily Saunders, who's really absolutely terrific. And uh, Wiggy 
is a, a doctor who has uh, specialized and really uh, created a niche for himself in integrative medicine. And he explains the complexity of this as it's applied to um, as it's applied to the long COVID syndrome. Uh, Wiggy is in uh, practice at Robin Hood Integrative Health, and that's in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. It's a terrific interview. And in fact, it has a lot of practical information for all of those uh, of you listening who are seeking information on what labs, what approaches, what supplements, and what medications can address the long COVID syndrome. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to bring a dedicated expert who's treated uh, hundreds, if not thousands, of patients with the long COVID syndrome. This is difficult because it's in the absence of randomized trials, uh, way ahead of where the information on therapeutics will be in a few years, but patients are suffering now and they need our help. Finally, as a program note, uh, many of you know about this, but this week uh, was the big release of my book, and I've re uh, recruited and uh, teamed up with true crime author, uh, author John Leake. John Leake is uh, the author of uh, bestsellers in the past that deal with uh, uh, of, um, true crimes. And John is, an, is a worldwide historian, a philosopher, a, um, a forensic expert. Uh, he is a man for all seasons, uh, and he has with me, put together the narrative, the true narrative of what happened with COVID-19 initially, what were our responses, and how we put came together and put together medical treatments all over the world. Uh, the McCullough Protocol is featured, but there's many, are, many others, many of the heroes that you know that attempted to save as many patients as they could are mentioned, some with dedicated chapters. And sadly, uh, a wonderful woman whose mother passed away uh, in the hospital. She's also featured in there. This is a, a true narrative. Uh, it's written by a bestseller. It's the only COVID-19 book uh, in the space that's written by a best-selling author. I provided uh, medical context, edits, and key additions and amplifications. The title of the book is called Courage to Face COVID-19, Preventing Hospitalizations and Death While Battling the biopharmaceutical complex. And I really think that that's what I know I've been doing clinically for the last two years. It took us over a year to put together this extensively referenced and uh, work uh, of nonfiction. Uh, it has uh, all the details and the drama of the historic U.S. Senate testimony, including, you know, starting off with Pierre Corey in 2020, on the use of corticosteroids. This is a must-have book for every shelf in America because as we go through the COVID years, I think all of us are gonna to wanna to look back and reflect on where were we, what happened to us, how can we interpret what happened to our individual lives and our families in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic? Who was really showing courage there? Encourage doctors, nurses, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, patients, and others. Who was showing courage to face the virus? And how did they battle uh, much larger forces in the biopharmaceutical complex? Again, a must read. Very, very proud of this work. Uh, we've had a tremendous reception so far in terms of requests for 
book presentations, book reviews, and summaries across uh, social media and major media. It's available to you on the America Out Loud bookstore. Go to the website on the front. You'll find it there. Uh, America Out Loud has a terrific collection of books, the ones that are really relevant to our listeners on the platform. Malcolm does a terrific job curating the bookstore, and we're, we're proud to join others there who have worked so hard with their scholarship to bring the truth to America and to the world. So on the back side, let's look forward to hearing from Dr. Wiggy Saunders, Integrative Medicine and the Approach to the Long COVID Syndrome. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough. You know, I want to tell you about Cofix RX and a recent experience I had at my house. Cofix RX is Povidone iodine nasal spray in a 1.25% solution and a spray bottle that actually actuates the Povidone iodine into a gentle spray into the nose in order to kill nasal pharyngeal pathogens, including SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19. But, you know, the viruses that cause the common cold, paramyxoviruses, other coronaviruses, adenoviruses, as an example. Common bacteria, including uh, pneumococcus, haemophilus, staphylococcus, uh, streptococcus, all those common organisms that cause sinusitis. Uh, importantly, the uh, product is used with a spray pump up each nostril. Don't hold your head back, just in a neutral position and there it can be used uh, about three times a day in a 24-hour period in the active treatment of a cold. And so the household experience was my wife got a cold and I could tell she was getting congested. She didn't feel well. I said, let's get Cofix RX into action. We got it out of our cabinet and she started using Cofix RX about three times a day uh, while awake. And the reason why I'm telling you this is that she got through the cold. She had cold symptoms. I think they were abbreviated and less severe than they could be. But importantly, no one else in the house got sick. How did that happen? Because the infectivity is really cut down for the people who use Povidone iodine, these patients, because the virus is not replicated and being spread in such a fulminant fashion compared to someone who's untreated and just coughing and sneezing with Kleenexes all around the house. Cofix RX, I believe, shortened the course of uh, illness for my wife and importantly did not spread it to me or other people in my household including two elderly vulnerable people there where even a common cold could be potentially fatal for uh, in particular my 98 year old father-in-law so i have to tell you we're on pins and needles when anybody gets sick in the house and cofix rx is not far away so go to cofixrx.com and in the promotional code uh, put in out loud for a discount let's get real let's get loud on america out loud talk radio if you're like me you'd like life to return to some kind of normal you're burned out on the precautions but deep down you still want to avoid getting sick you've heard it talked about time and again by respected medical professionals use a povidone iodine antiviral nasal spray made in the usa cofix rx reduces viral loads and minimizes the risk of you getting sick. Find a retailer near you or click our banner ad on americaoutloud.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off.
Surely if you can't find it here, you can't find it anywhere. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought. So you can listen in on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day. Yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. I want to put in a big word for healthy cell supplements. The GI tract is not functioning normally in long COVID syndrome. I'm convinced of it. There are multiple studies. We need a much better absorbed set of nutraceutical and vitamin products for long COVID syndrome, and that's healthy cell. They have an entire line that's safe and effective, uh, can help people through the long COVID syndrome. I found the best way to use healthy cell products is use them every day, not on and off, on and off. Take them every day consistently. The immune super boost, focus and memory, and the REM sleep supplement all have powerful effects in long COVID syndrome. Go to healthycell.com and in the promo code, type in out loud for 20% off your first order. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. It's my great pleasure to welcome to the microphone for the first time on the report, Dr. Weston Wiggy Saunders. Dr. Saunders attended undergraduate at Wake Forest University, went on to medical school also at Wake Forest University, and then did his family medicine residency at Moses Cone Hospital, which is a very academic Medical Center in Greensboro, North Carolina. I've had a chance to give grand rounds at Moses Cone uh, in the past. Uh, Wiggy has uh, really evolved as an integrative medicine specialist, and I've brought him on the program today to give us an overview of the integrative approach to COVID-19 long hauler syndrome. Wiggy, welcome to the McCullough Report. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. Okay, let's set the stage. You know, COVID-19 has been uh, such a big issue for our country. The CDC estimates more than half of adults uh, have had COVID-19. Who is the prototypical patient who develops long haul syndrome? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that's actually a hard question to answer because I don't necessarily see a standard patient that develops uh, long haul COVID. I think that probably the best characteristics for the the patient really has to deal with the severity of their case. So a lot of times if they have a real severe case, we tend to see more symptoms of long hauler uh, after the fact. And then I think a lot of it also has to do with kind of their underlying health health issues. So if they come into COVID uh, with a a lot of different health issues, a lot of times we see that they have a harder time uh, pulling out of it. Yeah. Yeah. I I would, I would tend to agree with that. Do you think there are discrete subsets? Have you identified in your practice kind of discrete subsets of long hauler syndrome? Yeah, you know, I would say that the probably highest percentage of patients that that still have these these symptoms for long term, I would probably classify them in the 50 to 70 
year old demographic, um, you know, generally not particularly uh, real sick again beforehand. They, they have some things, maybe like some autoimmune uh, predispositions beforehand, but it's really kind of a strange, uh, strange population as far as who gets it and who doesn't. Uh, and a lot of times it's, you know, some of the people that I would expect to have a lot of troubles afterward, they seem to do fine. And then some of the people that I really would expect they would have done fine, they really struggle. But I, I would I would say it's generally the older population. That's probably the only true characteristic that I think has, uh, again, any sort of uh, commonality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what are some of the common signs and symptoms that you're seeing? Yeah, so that, that's a good question, too. And I think it's a lot broader um, than I think some people think. Uh, but the best way that I, I would describe this is that, you know, just after COVID, they just, they just don't feel like themselves. So, you know, they were, they were doing okay. They get COVID, they, they get through it. But then really since that point on, they just continue to feel terrible. And so I see a lot of, lot of fatigue uh, that flares up. So we see a ton of patients that are just, just really tired. And then we also see a lot of joint pain, headaches, uh, some neurologic symptoms, but it's just an overall sense of malaise. They just still just don't feel well. How about uh, hair falling out, nail changes? Mm. Yes. So, and that's where it's, it's tricky is that there are a ton of different symptoms that, that we see. Uh, hair loss is a huge problem. So I've seen, it seems like every other woman that comes in uh, to the practice is complaining of, of hair loss. Definitely more women than men complain of, complain of that. Uh, but yeah, we see a ton of, of hair loss uh, after COVID. And I'd, I even say sometimes after vaccine as well. And what's the typical workup that a patient, just as you described, someone who just feels fatigued, lethargy, yeah. Uh, yeah. large clumps of hair loss, what would be the typical workup you'd do? Yeah, and I think that's where integrative medicine uh, really is able to shine because this is this needs to be a pretty comprehensive uh, workup. There's not a there's not a one size fits all, and there's definitely no silver bullet uh, for these for these cases. So w- the way I try to look at this is I try to look at this as from a is, this is a major stressor uh, on the body, and try to figure out what sort of deficiencies or imbalance of, imbalances have happened uh, after COVID. So uh, a, a typical workup will do you know a pretty comprehensive micronutrient panel. So we'll look at things like magnesium, uh, B vitamins, uh, vitamin C, vitamin D. And then we'll also go down the endocrine path because we also tend to think that there's, there's some adrenal uh, dysfunction uh, that happens after COVID. So we'll check a cortisol. Sometimes we do a cortisol stim test. And then we also look at thyroid levels. So a full thyroid panel and a full hormone panel. And that's usually where we start uh, specifically to, to hair loss. You know, we also will add in um, iron levels. It's interesting. We tend to see a lot of iron deficiency uh, after COVID. Yeah, COVID seems to be, in my observation, a big catabolic strain on the body. I've been impressed with mm-hmm. weight loss, particularly muscle mass loss. Have you seen the same? Oh, absolutely, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's this is one of the, I think, one of the bigger stressors the body will have to have to go through, especially for for severe cases. And you know, in one of the most common, uh, you know, glands that are affected by stress, it is the it is the adrenals. So I think it is a catabolic stress, but I think it's also just a, just an overall physiologic stress on the body. And so we see a lot of adrenal dysfunction. So cortisol levels, a lot of times are, are low compared to where they, where they should be. And then we do see a lot of, a lot of problems from that. So not only do we see low cortisol levels, but then we'll see thyroid dysfunction. So we'll see lower, 
lower free T3 levels. We'll see higher reverse T3 levels. Uh, and then we also tend to see really, really uh, severe hormone imbalances too. So for women, we tend to see uh, there's, a, there's an estrogen progesterone imbalance. A lot of times progesterone levels are very depleted. And for guys, a lot of times we see that their testosterone levels are really low. You know, I think uh, the emerging science here is uh, suggesting that uh, indeed this is a real syndrome and definitely not in people's heads. You, you indicate there's really a plethora of laboratory data that are very objective. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to point out for the listeners on my Twitter feed uh, uh, this week uh, is a paper uh, by Andreas Zollner and colleagues from um, Innsbruck, Austria. And the title of the paper is Post-Acute COVID-19 is Characterized by Gut Viral Antigen Persistence in Inflammatory Bowel Diseases. So they had patients mm. with inflammatory bowel diseases, Wiggy, and they you know, took biopsies and they took a, 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 you know, capitalized on this and looked for mm -hmm. COVID. And it turns out that patients have COVID identifiable in the GI tract for months afterwards, for months. Interesting. It's, it's in the mucosa. And then in the National Institutes of Health first autopsy study by Chertow and colleagues, that's on the ResearchGate preprint server, they also found virus in a whole variety of tissues. When people die, they, they sampled mm. skin, lymph nodes, all the organs, and they found the virus was intact and low-level replicating up to 270 days after infection. That, well, that long case was uh, a organ transplant patient on immunosuppressors, but even the hmm. sick, sick older people who died, uh, they really had COVID in their body for months afterwards. And so yeah, I think it explains what you're seeing. Yeah, that's really interesting. And that's, I've been trying to understand the kind of the pathophysiology behind this long haul uh, COVID. And, and it sounds like from, from those studies that there is a possibility of this becoming more of a actually chronic infection. And that's one of the concerns uh, that I have. Uh, with this is that it does just becoming become a lingering smoldering infection that just you have to continue to fight um, or is it more along the lines of just being a you know trauma with stress and we have to kind of correct all the imbalances from that from that stress so which which way would you think that this would be leading more towards like a chronic infection or just kind of a chronic stress? You know I interviewed on the McCullough report now about six months ago Dr. Bruce Patterson uh, president of Incel DX, clinical pathologist, formerly at Northwestern and Stanford. Bruce identified the S1 segment of the spike mm. protein in human CD16 monocytes for up to 15 months after the infection. I think what's mm. happening, this virus is low level, probably in the body replicating, probably not communicable, but the body sp tr spends a tremendous amount of time clearing it out. And I asked, yeah. I asked Bruce, is there any other precedent for the body getting hit with an infection that it takes months and months to clear out? He said, yes. I said, which one? He said, Lyme. Mm. Lyme disease. Oh, interesting. Yeah, uh, we, the, interesting. The remnants of Borrelia burgdorferi stay in the body for a very long time. And so mm. these long haul patients, I think, are suffering with the virus in their body. You know, there was somebody in my close circles, my family member who had uh, COVID-19 in a nursing home. I can tell you, he tested intermittently positive about 17 mm -hmm. times afterwards for months. Right. Yeah, no, that is interesting because one, one of the tests that I also do when you talk about a workup for, for COVID, which I find just intellectually interesting, is I, I check COVID antibodies uh, on these patients as well. And, uh, and sometimes we're checking antibodies, and this is patients that have had uh, you know, COVID 15 months ago. 
and their antibodies are still off the charts. Mm-hmm. You know, like their semi-quant is greater than 2000, which I think would point still to the idea of there being some degree of lingering infection with ongoing spike protein antigen exposure. And they're still producing these, these antibodies, you know, for, for months mm-hmm. and, you know, mm-hmm. who knows how long uh, down the road. Yeah, that would explain it. Now, Wiggy, on the laboratory exam, I'm a traditional allopathic doctor, so I don't have the integrative mm-hmm. medicine skills. Um, you know, are you measuring serologic uh, uh, vitamin levels or are you using something like spectrocell, which is more of a, a real right. kind of response assay? Yeah, so we usually start off with just standard uh, lab core blood test. Mm-hmm. And those are, for the, those are for the easy ones. So we check uh, like a red blood cell magnesium level. We check the vitamin B12 and the vitamin D. And, and like I said, those are pretty easy. And that's, that's a good place to start. Uh, we are familiar with the other kind of spectrocell and the, we have a vibrant test that we can do, which can really look at the overall uh, vitamin and mineral levels. But generally what we see is that they're pretty depleted across the board. So a lot of times we see a low magnesium, we see a low vitamin D, we see a low iron. And I think that goes to the, to the fact that this, is just a, this was just a major stressor on the body. And that actually is one of the more effective things that we do to help people kind of pull out of this COVID funk is that we use someone called a IV Myers cocktail. Uh, you're probably familiar with it, but it's basically just uh, an IV of different vitamins and minerals, an IV of magnesium with different B vitamins and vitamin C. And it's actually pretty amazing. Some people, you know, they're feeling terrible. They're, they're dragging. They're having a hard time getting to the day. We give them one of the IV Myers cocktails. And the next day, they're like 80% better. So there is, a, there is this population that really responds really rapidly to some IV nutrition. You know, it makes a lot of sense because uh, if the paper by Zollner and colleagues from Innsbruck is correct, uh, the GI tract is not going to be working right for several months after COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you try, try to take a lot of oral supplements, may not get the absorption, may not have the microbiome, uh, uh, you know, cooperating. And it makes a lot yes, of yes. sense to go IV. Yeah. So yeah, that's one of our, I think one of our better tools, at least to just kind of slow things down and to get people some quality of life again, because, you know, you're, you're, I'm sure you're seeing a lot of patients that are post COVID and the, the degree of severity uh, for fatigue for a lot of these patients is, is pretty advanced. Like they really have a, they really have a hard time just functioning in their normal day-to-day activities. And so if you can give them little, that little bit of a boost, and I think that those, you know, the vitamins and minerals really nourishing uh, the body and nourishing the adrenal glands will at least kind of get them, get them functioning again, while we start to address kind of these other, these other dysfunctions. And that's really where I think, you know, almost, you know, all these patients, uh, they need a pretty comprehensive workup and a pretty comprehensive treatment plan because it it is, it's a domino effect. They get COVID, you know, they get some adrenal dysfunction, which causes thyroid dysfunction, which causes hormone problems uh, with the micronutrient deficiencies. It's it's just a soup of things that need to be addressed. Okay. Now, how about uh, prescription drugs? I know there's no randomized trials yet. Most of the academic Mm -hmm. medical centers have long covid clinics, but, but you have a large integrative medicine practice, one of the largest in the region. Uh, what, what's been your experience or your practice partner's experience with prescription drugs and long COVID? Yeah. You know, there's, there's really nothing great I'd say for, for long COVID. Uh, we have used uh, ivermectin. So we, we do, we do think that there's a, there's a role for that. And that could be for people that have, you know, the really high antibody levels. That's more of an indication for me to try the ivermectin and kind of do it in a preventive dose, uh, the once a week dosing. 
And that does help uh, quite a few people. So we've had some people, well, that was kind of the, that was a trick uh, that got them to feel better. I just had a patient today or yesterday, and he was a 75-year-old gentleman that had COVID. And he had to terrible joint pain uh, afterwards. That was his primary complaint, where he's kind of hobbling around and put him on ivermectin. He had really high antibodies, and now his joint pain is gone. But when he stops it, it comes back. So it's also kind of this, this lingering problem that he has. So ivermectin, I think, is helpful. Uh, we will try a round of steroids, especially if they are showing markers still of inflammation. So if their CRP levels are high or if they're or they're just really inflamed, we'll try that. And that can be helpful, too. That also gives the adrenals a bit of a break. Uh, but I'd say for prescriptions, you know, the other thing we, we do tend to focus on uh, that I've mentioned is thyroid uh, optimization. So we do see that thyroid dysfunction is definitely heightened after COVID. So we will use thyroid medication to boost up their, their, uh, their thyroid levels. And then for women, uh, balancing hormones. So using bioidentical progesterone uh, can be very helpful because progesterone oftentimes is really depleted during an inflammatory attack like COVID. So it takes a lot of skill actually to evaluate all these axes and provide the support, which in my experience can be three, six, nine, even 12 months uh, in duration. Uh, the one thing I have noticed is that if the syndrome is predominantly a pleural pericardial uh, syndrome, maybe with arthralgias, I tend to use colchicine for extended mm -hmm. use and uh, the course of prednisone like you do. And then for the, the neuropathy, neuropathic um, uh, cerebral syndromes, um, I uh, end up using um, fluvoxamine. Okay. And, uh, and fluvoxamine has as an SNRI serotonin nor norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor, but it also has some anti-inflammatory properties and it has a real mm -hmm. track record in COVID acute COVID trials. And now is it's panning out that long COVID may be an extended SARS-CoV-2 basically. Infection. Right. Um, right. Yeah. That's uh, interesting. That, yeah. Yeah. That reminds me of another medication that, that we do use uh, and along the lines of kind of the neurologic piece. Uh, we've also used a lot of low-dose naltrexone. So uh, LDN has also been one of our favorite tools uh, for post-COVID. Not only does it seem to help with kind of this, this neurologic symptoms, uh, so we use it for uh, like when patients lose their taste and smell, a lot of times LDN can be helpful for restoring their, uh, their senses. Uh, but it's also a good, um, it's a good pain medication. Uh, low-dose naltrexone. So patients that complain of joint pain, muscle aches, the naltrexone really helps with that. And it's, and it's really kind of a, a beautiful medication for post-COVID because not only helps with pain, but it also helps with modulating the immune system, which I do think is a big part of this. The immune system is just so confused that we need to get it kind of back in balance. So yeah, we use, we do, we use LDN on a lot of patients. Wow. That's a terrific, terrific tip. Um, there's a lot actually for our listeners to consider here. Let me just explore with you one more area, and that's the severe COVID patient who goes home on oxygen. They've been hospitalized. Mm -hmm. Maybe they've been on the ventilator, had a tracheostomy, and they have what's called organizing pneumonia. Now, it's not really a pneumonia, but if you get a chest X-ray or certainly a chest CT, it's really abnormal. Uh, what's mm -hmm. been your approach to these patients? Yeah, we, we haven't really seen seen many of those patients, and that's, uh, I mean, that's uh, in some way we're 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 not experienced with uh, with those severe cases. Partly, I think because, you know, we really do focus on early treatment, 
So, you know, we, we treated, you know, out of our probably 3000 plus patients that we've treated, we probably have had, you know, 10 hospitalizations. And out of those we've had, I believe, uh, two patients that came home on oxygen. Everybody else was, everyone else was fine. So I, w- I actually wouldn't have a lot of experience to, to tell you what would be best for those patients. So, I mean, is it your observation, though, that early treatment, um, you think, by the mechanism of reducing the intensity of severity of disease, keeping people out of the hospital, uh, probably mm-hmm. renders overall a lower rate of these organizing pneumonia cases? Yeah, I mean, I think it has to. You know, like I said, either, either we, were, we were really lucky and just all of our patients did extremely well, or this early treatment really did, A, keep people out of the hospital. And even those that did have to go to the hospital, it kept them from developing into severe disease. So like I said, yeah, out of those, out of those 10, I don't think we, yeah, we had uh, no one in the ICU. So I, again, so no one really had a super severe case. And we treated a ton of people. Uh, actually, no, I maybe take that back. I think we'd have one patient uh, in the ICU. But no, I said everyone else, they got there, you know, they got some extra supplemental oxygen in the, in the hospital, got tanked up with some fluids, uh, some steroids, stayed there a couple of days, and then they were able to be, to be discharged to home. So no, I, 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 I feel very strongly that early treatment saved lots of lives and it kept a lot of people out of the hospital, a lot of people out, the, out of the ICU. I know that's, that's debatable, but I said it's hard to, to not think that when, you, when you're seeing it every day. And you're seeing how well your patients are doing. And then you see the opposite. You see the, the papers yep. published of all these people hospitalized and, and dying, and none of them have received early treatment. Now, I want to let the listeners know that um, I have had some experience with these severe cases that come out on oxygen. CT scan shows what's called an organizing pneumonia, very abnormal physical exam in CT. And at least two centers, one in Dallas and one in Phoenix now, is developing a very positive experience with hyperbaric oxygen. Uh, it's, it's in addition, you know, it's not very steroid responsive. We tried prolonged steroids, prolonged ivermectin, colchicine. It's just that it's anticoagulants. I mean, we've done everything. And I have been impressed with uh, about a six week course of hyperbaric oxygen mm. given on a regular basis through the week. And again, we're in the absence of clinical trials. We hope that, you know, there'll be right. funding. There'll be, you know, we'll have clinical trials come in, but the clinical trials for this, I I think are going to be, unfortunately, just like for COVID, not too satisfying because they're going to be one of these single drug approaches. And Mm -hmm. you and I have laid out that this is pretty unlikely to be a single drug problem. Right. So we won't get into these multi-drug approaches for many years going forward. And patients uh, are, you know, sick now and want help now for chest pain, shortness of breath, particularly in situations where there's multiple spike protein exposure. Let's say took a vaccine, Mm -hmm. shot one, shot two, took a booster, then got COVID. So now there's four exposures of spike protein, uh, chest pain, uh, pleural pericardial uh, syndrome. I get a CT. I tell you, I've seen blood clots. Uh, I've Mm. seen basically pulmonary embolism. Uh, I had one recently, no vaccine, just post-COVID and uh, um, checked uh, the lower extremity Dopplers as well as CT, and she actually had bilateral devenous thrombosis. So mm-hmm. I've been sensitized to the fact that this is such a prothrombotic illness that you know three to six months afterwards, patient's not getting better. Uh, you get tipped off on some findings uh, to go ahead and get the CT scan and the Doppler of the legs. Yeah, that's, that's good. good. Yeah, I think 
Yeah. The other thing I would probably just uh, point out to the, to the listeners is that if you're not feeling well, there are things that can be done. I think, you know, unfortunately, a lot of patients were like, gosh, I'm just not feeling, not feeling like myself. And I do think it's, it is that sequential exposure where it seems to be, it seems to get worse. So either they got the vaccine, then they get the, the viral infection, and then they get a, a booster. It seems like each time they get that exposure, their symptoms tend to, to be exacerbated. It's so true. You know, I just came back today from the uh, Children Health Defense uh, State Capitol meeting in Columbus, Ohio. Huge meeting, hundreds of people there in the rotunda. And Wiggy, the patients got up st- on stage and told their vignettes of having mm-hmm. vaccine injuries. And many of them was they had already had COVID and they yes. had to take the vaccine for work or family was forcing them into it. And then they mm-hmm. ended up, the most dramatic ones were these neurologic syndromes. And uh, the, the, now we're talking, you know, vaccine injury syndromes on top of COVID, but the uh, transverse myelitis syndromes that they were reporting, I had a chance to go up and, you know, see one of the patients and just get a sense of her muscular tone and, and the involuntary movements, et cetera. Mm-hmm. It's just extraordinary. Uh, others, a Guillain-Barre syndrome. Uh, so yeah. I want to point out to the listeners that uh, you know, when there's neurologic findings, people that, you know, lose sensation in their, uh, in their feet and hands, lose the ability to walk, have uh, involuntary movements, uh, for sure seek help because uh, yes. clearly there needs to be uh, MRI or CT imaging. One of the ladies, uh, unfortunately, had a hemorrhage in her brain. So we have to make a diagnosis. Uh, I think when uh, there are hard findings neurologically, hard findings from a cardiovascular uh, perspective that we we have to do imaging and we have to make yes. a, you know identify one of these syndromes well wiggy saunders i want to thank you so much for joining us on the mccullough report thank you very much for having me let's get real let's get loud on america loud talk radio this is mccullough report